0: Chapter One of Uncle Bernac: A Memory of the Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kathy Barrett. Chapter One: The Coast of France. I dare say that I had already read my uncle's letter a hundred times, and I am sure that I knew it by heart. Nonetheless, I took it out of my pocket, and sitting on the side of the lugger, I went over it again with as much attention as if it were for the first time. It was written in a prim, angular hand, such as one might expect from a man who had begun life as a village attorney, and it was addressed to Louis de Laval, to the care of William Hargraves, of the green man in Ashford, Kent. The landlord had many a hogshead of untaxed French brandy from the Normandy coast, and the letter had found its way by the same hands my dear nephew louis said the letter now that your father is dead and that you are alone in the world i am sure that you will not wish to carry on the feud which has existed between the two halves of the family at the time of the troubles your father was drawn towards the side of the king and i towards that of the people and it ended as you know by his having to fly from the country and by my becoming the possessor of the estates of Grosbois. no doubt it is very hard that you should find yourself in a different position to your ancestors but I am sure that you would rather that the land should be held by a Bernac than by a stranger. From the brother of your mother you will at least always meet with sympathy and consideration. And now I have some advice for you. You know that I have always been a Republican, but it has become evident to me that there is no use in fighting against fate, and that Napoleon's power is far too great to be shaken. This being so, I have tried to serve him, for it is well to howl when you are among wolves." I have been able to do so much for him that he has become my very good friend, so that I may ask him what I like in return. He is now, as you are probably aware, with the army at Boulogne, within a few miles of Grosbois. If you will come over at once, he will certainly forget the hostility of your father in consideration of the services of your uncle. It is true that your name is still prescribed, but my influence with the Emperor will set that matter right. Come to me, then, come at once, and come with confidence. Your uncle, C. Bernac so much for the letter, but it was the outside which had puzzled me most. A seal of red wax had been affixed at either end, and my uncle had apparently used his thumb as a signet. One could see the little rippling edges of a coarse skin imprinted upon the wax, and then above one of the seals there was written in English the two words, Don't come. It was hastily scrawled, and whether by a man or a woman it was impossible to say, but there it stared me in the face, that sinister addition to an invitation. Don't come had it been added by this unknown uncle of mine on account of some sudden change in his plans. Surely that was inconceivable, for why in that case should he send the invitation at all? Or was it placed there by someone else who wished to warn me from accepting this offer of hospitality? The letter was in French, the warning was in English. Could it have been added in England? But the seals were unbroken, and how could anyone in England know what were the contents of the letter?' And then, as I sat there with the big sail humming like a shell above my head, and the green water hissing beside me, I thought over all that I had heard of this uncle of mine. My father, the descendant of one of the proudest and oldest families in France, had chosen beauty and virtue rather than rank in his wife. Never for an hour had she given him cause to regret it, but this lawyer brother of hers had, as I understood, offended my father by his slavish obsequiousness in days of prosperity and his venomous enmity in the days of trouble. He had hounded on the peasants until my family had been compelled to fly from the country, and had afterwards aided Robespierre in his worst excesses, receiving as a reward the castle and estate of Grosbois, which was our own. At the fall of Robespierre he had succeeded in conciliating Barras, and through every successive change he still managed to gain a fresh tenure of the property. Now it appeared from his letter that the new Emperor of France had also taken his part, though why he should befriend a man with such a history, and what service my Republican uncle could possibly render to him, were matters upon which I could form no opinion. And now you will ask me, no doubt, why I should accept the invitation of such a man, a man whom my father had always stigmatized as a usurper and a traitor. It is easier to speak of it now than then, but the fact was that we of the new generation felt it very irksome and difficult to carry on the bitter quarrels of the last." to the older migrs the clock of time seemed to have stopped in the year seventeen ninety two and they remained for with the loves and the hatreds of that era fixed indelibly upon their souls they had been burned into them by the fiery furnace through which they had passed but we who had grown up upon a strange soil understood that the world had moved and that new issues had arisen we were inclined to forget these feuds of the last generation france to us was no longer the murderous land of the sans-culottes and the guillotine basket it was rather the glorious queen of war, attacked by all and conquering all, but still so hard-pressed that her scattered sons could hear her call to arms for ever sounding in their ears. It was that call more than my uncle's letter which was taking me over the waters of the channel. For long my heart had been with my country in her struggle, and yet while my father lived I had never dared to say so, for to him who had served under Condé and fought at Quiberon it would have seemed the blackest treason. But after his death there was no reason why I should not return to the land of my birth, and my desire was the stronger because Eugenie, the same Eugenie who has been thirty years my wife, was of the same way of thinking as myself. Her parents were a branch of the de Choiseul, and their prejudices were even stronger than those of my father. Little did they think of what was passing in the minds of their children. Many a time when they were mourning a French victory in the parlour we were both capering with joy in the garden there was a little window all choked round with laurel bushes in the corner of the bare brick house and there we used to meet at night the dearer to each other from our difference with all who surrounded us i would tell her my ambitions she would strengthen them by her enthusiasm and so all was ready when the time came but there was another reason besides the death of my father and the receipt of this letter from my uncle ashford was becoming too hot to hold me i will say this for the english that they were very generous hosts to the french emigrants there was not one of us who did not carry away a kindly remembrance of the land and its people. But in every country there are overbearing, swaggering folk, and even in quiet, sleepy Ashford we were plagued by them. There was one young Kentish squire, Farley was his name, who had earned a reputation in the town as a bully and a roisterer. He could not meet one of us without uttering insults, not merely against the present French government, which might have been excusable in an English patriot, but against France itself and all Frenchmen often we were forced to be deaf in his presence but at last his conduct became so intolerable that i determined to teach him a lesson there were several of us in the coffee-room at the green man one evening and he full of wine and malice was heaping insults upon the french his eyes creeping round to me every moment to see how i was taking it now monsieur de laval he cried putting his rude hand upon my shoulder here is a toast for you to drink this is to the arm of nelson which strikes down the french he stood leering at me to see if I would drink it. "'Well, sir,' said I, "'I will drink your toast if you will drink mine in return.' "'Come on, then,' said he. "'So we drank. Now, monsieur, let us have your toast,' said he. "'Fill your glass, then,' said I. "'It is full now.' "'Well, then, here's to the cannon-ball which carried off that arm.' In an instant I had a glass of port wine running down my face, and within an hour a meeting had been arranged." I shot him through the shoulder, and that night, when I came to the little window, Eugenie plucked off some of the laurel leaves and stuck them in my hair. There were no legal proceedings about the duel, but it made my position a little difficult in the town, and it will explain, with other things, why I had no hesitation in accepting my unknown uncle's invitation, in spite of the singular addition which I found upon the cover. If he had indeed sufficient influence with the Emperor to remove the prescription which was attached to our name, then the only barrier which shut me off from my country would be demolished. You must picture me all this time as sitting upon the side of the lugger and turning my prospects and my position over in my head. My reverie was interrupted by the heavy hand of the English skipper dropping abruptly upon my arm. "'Now then, master,' said he, "'it's time you were stepping into the dinghy.' I do not inherit the politics of the aristocrats, but I have never lost their sense of personal dignity. I gently pushed away his polluting hand, and I remarked that we were still a long way from the shore. "'Well, you can do as you please,' said he roughly. "'I am going no nearer, so you can take your choice of getting into the dinghy, or of swimming for it.' It was in vain that I pleaded that he had been paid his price. I did not add that that price meant that the watch which had belonged to three generations of de Laval's was now lying in the shop of a Dover goldsmith. "'Little enough, too,' he cried harshly. "'Down sail, Jim, and bring her to. Now, master, you can step over the side, or you can come back to Dover, but I don't take the vixen a cable's length nearer to Emblauteu's beef with this gale coming up from the sow-west.' "'In that case I shall go,' said I. "'You can lay your life on that,' he answered, and laughed in so irritating a fashion that I half turned upon him with the intention of chastising him one is very helpless with these fellows however for a serious affair is of course out of the question while if one uses a cane upon them they have a vile habit of striking with their hands which gives them an advantage the marquis de chamfort told me that when he first settled in sutton at the time of the emigration he lost a tooth when reproving an unruly peasant i made the best of a necessity therefore and shrugging my shoulders i passed over the side of the lugger into the little boat my bundle was dropped in after me "'Conceive to yourself the air of all the Devals traveling with a single bundle for his baggage,' and two seamen pushed her off, pulling with long slow strokes towards the low-lying shore. There was certainly every promise of a wild night, for the dark cloud which had rolled up over the setting sun was now frayed and ragged at the edges, extending a good third of the way across the heavens. It had split low down near the horizon, and the crimson glare of the sunset beat through the gap, so that there was the appearance of fire with a monstrous reek of smoke.' a red dancing belt of light lay across the broad slate-coloured ocean, and in the centre of it the little black craft was wallowing and tumbling. The two seamen kept looking up at the heavens, and then over their shoulders at the land, and I feared every moment that they would put back before the gale burst. I was filled with apprehension every time when the end of their pull turned their faces skyward, and it was to draw their attention away from the storm-drift that I asked them what the lights were which had begun to twinkle through the dusk both to the right and to the left of us. "'That's Boulogne to the north, and Etaples upon the south,' said one of the seamen civilly. "'Boulogne! Etaples! How the words came back to me! It was to Boulogne that in my boyhood we had gone down for the summer bathing. Could I not remember as a little lad trotting along by my father's side as he paced the beach, and wondering why every fisherman's cap flew off at our approach?' And as to Etaples, it was thence that we had fled for England, when the folks came raving to the pier-head as we passed, and I joined my thin voice to my father's as he shrieked back at them, for a stone had broken my mother's knee, and we were all frenzied with our fear and our hatred. And here they were, these places of my childhood, twinkling to the north and south of me, while there, in the darkness between them, and only ten miles off at the furthest, lay my own castle, my own land of Grosbois where the men of my blood had lived and died long before some of us had gone across with duke william to conquer the proud island over the water how i strained my eager eyes through the darkness as i thought that the distant black keep of our fortless might even now be visible yes sir said the seaman tis a fine stretch of lonesome coast and many is the cock of your hackle that i have helped ashore there what do you take me for then i asked "'Well, it is no business of mine, sir,' he answered. "'There are some trades that had best not even be spoken about.' "'You think that I'm a conspirator?' "'Well, master, since you have put a name to it, Lor love you, sir, we're used to it. "'I give you my word that I am none.' "'An escaped prisoner, then?' "'No, nor that either.' The man leaned upon his oar, and I could see in the gloom that his face was thrust forward, and that it was wrinkled with suspicion. "'If you're one of boney's spies,' he cried, I a A spy!' The tone of my voice was enough to convince him. "'Well,' said he, "'I'm darned if I know what you are, but if you'd been a spy I'd have had no hand in landing you, whatever the skipper might say.' "'Mind you, I've no word to say against Boney,' said the other seaman, speaking in a very thick, rumbling voice. "'He's been a rare good friend to the poor mariner. It surprised me to hear him speak so.' for the virulence of feeling against the new French Emperor in England exceeded all belief, and high and low were united in their hatred of him. But the sailor soon gave me a clue to his politics. "'If the poor mariner can run in his little bit of coffee and sugar, and run out his silk and his brandy, he has bony to thank for it,' said he. "'The merchants have had their spell, and now it's the turn of the poor mariner.' I remembered, then, that Buonaparte was personally very popular amongst the smugglers, as well he might be, seeing that he had made over into their hands all the trade of the channel. The seaman continued to pull with his left hand, but he pointed with his right over the slate-coloured dancing waters. "'There's Boney himself,' said he. "'You who live in a quieter age cannot conceive the thrill which these simple words sent through me.' it was but ten years since we had first heard of this man with the curious italian name think of it ten years the time that it takes for a private to become a non-commissioned officer or a clerk to win a fifty-pound advance in his salary he had sprung in an instant out of nothing into everything one month people were asking who he was the next he had broken out in the north of italy like the plague venice and genoa withered at the touch of this swarthy ill-nourished boy he cowed the soldiers in the field and he outwitted the statesmen in the council chamber with a frenzy of energy he rushed to the east and then while men were still marvelling at the way in which he had converted egypt into a french department he was back again in italy and had beaten austria for the second time to the earth he travelled as quickly as the rumour of his coming and where he came there were new victories new combinations the crackling of old systems and the blurring of ancient lines of frontier holland savoy switzerland they were become mere names upon the map france was eating into europe in every direction they had made him Emperor, this beardless artillery officer, and without an effort he had crushed down those Republicans before whom the oldest king and the proudest nobility of Europe had been helpless. So it came about that we, who watched him dart from place to place like the shuttle of destiny, and who heard his name always in connection with some new achievement and some new success, had come at last to look upon him as something more than human, something monstrous, overshadowing France and menacing Europe his giant presence loomed over the continent and so deep was the impression which his fame had made in my mind that when the english sailor pointed confidently over the darkening waters and cried there's bony i looked up for the instant with a foolish expectation of seeing some gigantic figure some elemental creature dark inchoate and threatening brooding over the waters of the channel even now after the long gap of years and the knowledge of his downfall that great man casts his spell upon you but all that you read and all that you hear cannot give you an idea of what his name meant in the days when he was at the summit of his career. What actually met my eye was very different from this childish expectation of mine. To the north there was a long, low cape, the name of which has now escaped me. In the evening light it had been of the same greyish-green tint as the other headlands, but now, as the darkness fell, it gradually broke into a dull glow, like a cooling iron. On that wild night, seen and lost with the heave and sweep of the boat, this lurid streak carried with it a vague but sinister suggestion. The red line splitting the darkness might have been a giant half-forged sword-blade with its point towards England. "'What is it, then?' I asked. "'Just what I say, master,' said he. "'It's one of Boney's armies, with Boney himself in the middle of it as like as not. Them is their campfires, and you'll see a dozen such between this and Ostend.' He's audacious enough to come across, his little bony, if he could douse Lord Nelson's other eye. But there's no chance for him until then, and well he knows it. "'How can Lord Nelson know what he is doing?' I asked. The man pointed over my shoulder into the darkness, and far on the horizon I perceived three little twinkling lights. "'Watchdog,' said he, in his husky voice. "'Andromeda, forty-four added his companion. "'I have often thought of them since.' the long glow upon the land, and the three little lights upon the sea, standing for so much, for the two great rivals face to face, for the power of the land and the power of the water, for the centuries-old battle which may last for centuries to come. And yet, Frenchman as I am, do I not know that the struggle is already decided, for it lies between the childless nation and that which has a lusty young brood springing up around her. If France falls, she dies." but if England falls, how many nations are there who will carry her speech, her traditions and her blood, on into the history of the future. The land had been looming darker, and the thudding of waves upon the sand sounded louder every instant upon my ears. I could already see the quick dancing gleam of the surf in front of me. Suddenly, as I peered through the deepening shadow, a long dark boat shot out from it, like a trout from under a stone, making straight in our direction. "'A guard-boat!' cried one of the seamen. "'Bill, boy, we're done,' said the other, and began to stuff something into his sea-boot. But the boat swerved at the sight of us, like a shying horse, and was off in another direction as fast as eight frantic oars could drive her. The seamen stared after her and wiped their brows. "'Her conscience don't seem much easier than our own,' said one of them. I made sure it was the preventives. "'Looks to me as if you weren't the only queer cargo on the coast tonight, mister,' remarked his comrade. "'What could she be?' "'Cursed if I know what she was! I rammed a cake of good Trinidad tobacco into my boot when I saw her. I've seen the inside of a French prison before now. Give way, Bill, and have it over.' A minute later, with a low grating sound, we ran aground upon a gravelly beach. My bundle was thrown ashore. I stepped after it, and a seaman pushed the prow off again, springing in as his comrade backed her into deep water. Already the glow in the west had vanished, the storm-cloud was half up the heavens, and a thick blackness had gathered over the ocean. As I turned to watch the vanishing boat, a keen wet blast flapped in my face, and the air was filled with the high piping of the wind, and with the deep thunder of the sea. And thus it was that, on a wild evening in the early spring of the year 1805, I, Louis de Laval, being in the twenty-first year of my age, returned, after an exile of thirteen years, to the country of which my family had for many centuries been the ornament and support. She had treated us badly, this country, she had repaid our services by insult, exile and confiscation but all that was forgotten as i the only de laval of the new generation dropped upon my knees upon her sacred soil and with the strong smell of the seaweed in my nostrils pressed my lips upon the wet and pringling gravel End of chapter one